sometimes be hard to find fresh, engaging, and practical ways to learn about the Catholic faith that feel relevant to your daily life. That's why Ave Maria Press launched its Ave Explores initiative to bring everyday faith to everyday people. Check it out at AveMariaPress.com and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Church Life Today is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and our listeners. Where do our beloved dead go? How do they live? And what does this all mean for us who remain? Those questions are animating a project I'm working on between the McGrath Institute for Church Life, where I work, and Ave Maria Press as part of the Engaging Catholicism series. To help with this project, I've asked a few people if they would talk with me about their experiences of grief, about their hope for communion with loved ones who have died, and about their images of heaven. I'm not recording all of these conversations, but I am asking a couple, maybe a few people, if they would be willing to record an episode for our show so that you can listen in too. Today is the first of those couple or maybe three episodes. My guest is Laura Kelly Fanucci, a writer and speaker who has worked extensively on grief and longing and hope and vocation, but she's also got a story you have got to hear. Thanks for listening in. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life and the Spoke Street Media Network. Laura, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Laura, I first came across your writing, I think it was probably five years ago. There was a blog post that you wrote that made its rounds online and it came to my attention. I think it was under the title, This is the Story I Have to Tell You. There's a lot that caught my attention and really moved me in that article. But one of the things that I've returned to, especially now five years later, is that you speak of an experience of heaven a sort of foretaste of heaven in this time and place where you were and what you were doing. I think you said that this was heaven stretched out for hours. For people who don't know the story, where were you? What was going on? And what was this experience of heaven? Well, of all places, this was happening in a hospital NICU. That's the neonatal intensive care unit. And I was there with my husband. We were holding our daughter, Abby, and she was dying. And she was the second daughter that we had held dying in the NICU in two days. She and her twin sister were born prematurely. They were identical twins and they had developed a rare complication called twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome. So they had to be born very early and they were very sick. And despite the doctor's best efforts, they weren't able to save them. So... The day before this experience happened, Maggie had died in our arms, and here we were facing the same just awful loss and grief two days in a row. And what had happened was when we came into that hospital room, knowing full well what was likely to come, the nurse asked me if I wanted to hold Abby skin to skin, which is something you often do with Mm -hmm. a newborn baby right after birth. And... I was so resistant. I was just so sad and overwhelmed and just worn out from everything that had happened in the last few days. And I didn't want to hold her skin to skin. I didn't even know what I wanted to do. But the nurse was very gently persistent Mm -hmm. that I should do it. And so I agreed. 
And as soon as I settled myself in the chair and the whole team of NICU nurses, you know, maneuvered all the cords and the wires and everything that a very premature baby's hooked up to, and they put her on my chest, this whole experience of heaven and grace just opened up. And it was the most indescribable joy I've ever felt. I still, even five years later, struggle to talk about it. But when I when I remember it, it's like I'm right back there now mm-hmm. because I've never felt anything like it before or or since. I just, I mean, I I had already been there for the death of one baby. And here I was knowing that this child was not to live long. And yet it was like in that moment that she laid right on my chest, all of my grief and sorrow and anger just evaporated. It was like it didn't even exist. And I I just had this deep sense that this was what it was like to be in the heart of God. I just felt like this is absolute joy. And the wild thing was it kept going. It wasn't even just like a burst. It, it went on for hours. And my husband experienced the same thing. Like as soon as he kept saying to me, I wish you could see your face right now. I've never seen you look like this. Like you have so much joy and peace. I wish you could see your face. And as soon as we kind of swapped and took turns and he got to hold Abby, it was like what I saw in his face was the same thing I was experiencing. And he was right in that joy too. And we experienced that for hours that day until, you know, she died. And even after it was just my memory of that day is just wrapped in this incredible joy that we've been trying to figure out or just be in awe of ever since. And I did have a really strong sense, even in that moment, that that was like I wrote in that in that blog post years ago, it was a story that I had to tell. It was something that I felt was given to us to be shared with others. Yeah, so it's it's a deep mystery. I still don't know the depths of it, but I I'm so convinced of God because of it. I'm so convinced of heaven because of it. And that is an incredible gift to have been given in those hardest moments, you know, of my life. To have had that as well is just a deep mystery. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Laura, like the day before as you said, you had held your other daughter Maggie, and did not have this same kind of experience. But you also said that even now, five years later, and remembering this day with Abby, you are right back there. You can feel it. Did that day with Abby and your memory of it, does it, like, what does it do to the memory of your day with Maggie, your first daughter to die? Does it, Has it changed the way in which you think about or see that day, which as far as I know from what you said, was just grief and really horror, the horror of the death of your daughter. Yeah, that's such a good question because in some ways they were such polar opposites. Mm. I think that the experience, you know, that mystical maybe experience of joy that we had, in some ways I wondered later, were we prepared for it? by the death of Maggie, like, was it all part of one mystery? Because, you know, in the years since I've, I've talked and spoken with so many parents who have lost a child and, you know, most people go through what we went through with Maggie. It was just desolation mm-hmm. to lose a child. And I remember that night after she died, knowing full well that Abby was so sick and, and probably would not live much longer. I remember 
thinking in my own hospital room. I mean, I just had a C-section, so I was still in the hospital. And I remember trying to pray and just saying, God, how can you ask us to do this twice? This seems like beyond what any human should be asked to do, to have two children die in two days. How can you ask us to do this? And later when I would think back on the joy and I would think back on the grief, I would wonder if that was part of God's answer, not that the joy was you know, a special gift, like a bonus given to us for this horrible thing that happened twice, but that it was all part of the same mystery. And I think in so many ways, when I have talked to people about death and grief, I think there are many experiences people have where suffering and joy are really closely intertwined. And it's hard to talk about because it seems really strange. And we don't want to you know, glorify suffering in a way that justifies people's pain or oppression or, you know, suffering, but that there is a way in which the hard things that we go through sometimes are in relationship with the deepest joys of our life in ways that are very mysterious. And so I think when I look back on it now, I almost see them as like, maybe like a double helix, which might be fitting for identical twins, right? They had the same DNA, but I think of them as all part of the same mystery. And in some ways, I now see that perhaps it was a gift, a strange gift, but perhaps it was a gift to have gone through the kind of death that we experience with Maggie, because that is the door by which I have gotten to meet so many other grieving parents because that is that's the deep loss that so many of us have known. So maybe there's gift on both sides of it. Maybe that's part of God's mystery and whatever that grace was that we were given. I'm wondering about these other parents that you've met in the last five years, because you've met a lot. I mean, this has been part of your own work in ministry is writing on grief and ministering to couples that have lost children and miscarriages or infant death. Like you said, most people parents who lose their children, they have the experience like you had with Maggie, where it's the desolation and the grief. As your story with Abby of this indescribable joy has gotten out, what have been some of the reactions been from other parents about that story, about that side of your your witness and experience? I'm curious about that. Is it gratitude? Is it awe? Is there jealousy? Is there disbelief? What What have you encountered in that regard? Yeah, I think I've gotten to see the full range of reactions. I think there are many people who find deep comfort in experience in stories of experiences like this because they do seem like confirmation of our hopes. You mm-hmm. know, they seem like this beautiful gift that some people are given to glimpse what might come next, you know, what heaven might be like, what joy is like, what the presence of God is like when we get close. And I think there are other people who very kindly will admit to me that it does make them jealous because they didn't experience anything like that. And I am very sympathetic to that. I have the same response when I hear stories of people's, you know, their their survival stories of their miracle baby that made it through the NICU. I'm so happy for them. And I'm also jealous. Why didn't I get that? So yeah. I, I can feel that tension. But the story I always remember is actually a father from my own parish. My husband and I had... One of our pastors invited us to share a little bit about this story publicly in our parish. And I remember after we we did that, a father came up to me in the parking lot afterward and he said, my wife and I had a daughter who was stillborn 25 years ago. And of course, he knew exactly how old she would be, right? And he said, we didn't get anything like that. And what, what did we miss? 
as soon as I heard your story, I turned to my wife and I said, what did we miss? Why didn't we get that? And, you know, of course my heart ached. I didn't want my story to, to have put someone through that, but he and I had a really good conversation about the mystery that God gives certain experiences to some people and not others. I think that's the challenge that we find in the gospel, even with the miracle stories, right? I mean, they're incredible, these stories of Jesus bringing people back to life, right? Or healing people who were sick for so long. And they're incredible. And they, and we are meant to, to reflect and give thanks for those stories, those ways that God is at work. But I always think, you know, there were other parents whose daughters didn't get raised in the gospel. There were other people with deep disabilities or deep sickness, and they didn't get the healing that Jesus offered to this other. And that's part of the mystery we we have to live in as well, is to say, God does not work in the world in, you know, only these set categories for only these set conditions. There are ways in which certain kinds of experiences or even miracles happen and they aren't given in every way to everyone. And we're all kind of wrestling with that in some ways. So I think it's a reminder for me never to equate, you know, well, if you, it's not, it's not a matter of input and output, right? And that's part of the challenge of prayer too. We can't just say, well, if I pray for this, I pray to the right saints, I do the things, I, I'm faithful and I go through the motions, I'm going to get this output, right? Isn't that how it works, God? We all know it's not how that works, but we're asked to live in the tension of that and to know and to trust that 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 is that mystery of God's ways not being our ways. And as an as incredible as the experience was that we had, I would give it all back in a second for those girls to have lived. I would give I mean I would never write another word or never speak another word. I would give all of that back if I could have them. Mm. So it was an incredible gift and it also wasn't the one I wanted. Mm. <laughs> So I, I feel that with those parents, too. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on Spoke Street Media Network. I'm talking with Laura Kelly Finucci, Catholic speaker and the author of several books on topics like the messy grace of parenting, vocation and calling, and grief. We're talking today about both grief and hope, and especially about heaven and our relationship with our beloved dead. Laura, I'd love to know what your relationship is now with your two girls, Maggie and Abby. I think that their relationship with me is one that grows and changes. And that surprised me. I, I don't know why I maybe thought at the beginning that it would just be one way. You know, maybe it would be that they'd be intercessors for our family. I could ask them to pray for us or that, you know, there would just always be this connection between me and them as their mother. But I see now that my relationship with each of them is as dynamic, although different, as my relationship with their living brothers, right? I mean, which changes and grows all the time as their brothers change and grow. So I think I re I rely on them kind of as a, a help in prayer, as a reminder to stay on course with what matters most. I think the amazing thing is that because I am with them in a different way than I am with my living children, they're sort of with me all the time. Like I can call them to mind or be with them in ways that do transcend the normal everyday bodily encounters that I would have with their siblings. So I find that they and their presence teach me 
and, you know, gently remind me of who I am and who God is calling me to be. And I find that they connect me to other people. I'm amazed in the years since their deaths, in the ways that I have shared their stories through writing or speaking. Like I will have people that will come back and say, you know, I ask your daughters to pray for us or they're special intercessors for us or they're, you know, little saints that our family calls on. And I think, wow, they are doing work in the world that I don't know about. And I never will know the the ends of it, like where those tendrils are reaching. But isn't that true for, that's our hope for our children too, yeah. that they'll be up to good work, God's work in the world that we might not even know about. But yeah, it's a, it's a relationship of gratitude, I would say, and mm. still of joy, of longing, certainly of longing. I mean, there's there's lots of days that are very sad and hard still, you know, that grief will never go away, even if it changes over time. But I still come back to this deep gratitude for their lives and the gift that they are mm. to me and to others. You know, as I mentioned in the intro to this episode, part of the way we started talking about some of these things is doing this kind of research, I suppose, uh, working on a project about our relationship with the dead, our imagination about the life of the dead as a deeply Catholic thing, but often a neglected Catholic pastoral priority, we could say. And the theological work behind that is part of it. But I'm wondering about, Laura, your imagination. Like, how has your imagination, you think, changed or been challenged? Maybe it started, I don't know if it started that day with Abby, where you say, you know, you knew this to be an experience of heaven, or as you talk about now, the ways in which you imagine your girls living, you feel their life, you have a sense of their work in the world. So I guess I'm just really curious about your imagination. What do you imagine? What do you see? What do you hope for? Yeah, I, I think a lot about the idea of eternal life as being, it's happening right now. It's not just something that will be in the future that they're, you know, that our beloved dead are like in a holding pattern and then we'll just get to see them later and then we'll all be in eternity together. In some ways, you know, the mystery of eternal life means that somehow the dead are still living. We don't exactly know what that's like. We haven't had, you know, Jesus hasn't come back. So their bodies haven't joined their souls yet in the way that that mm -hmm. we believe that will happen. But what does it mean that they are still living. And, you know, sometimes I, I'm struck that when I picture them in my imagination or my memory, they aren't necessarily the same age, for example, that they would be like chronologically. I, sometimes I will see, you know, five or six-year-olds right now, and I will think about them. They kind of trigger my grief sometimes. And I think, oh, that's what they would look like. But often when I picture them, perhaps in prayer or just in thought or in conversation, sometimes I picture them as teenagers. Sometimes they are like young women. And I think it's so interesting how time is not bounded in eternal life. Like it's not going to proceed chronologically. Maybe, you know, we talk about different kinds of, of time theologically that there's chronological time that's, that's chronos, but there's this other kind of time with God that is Kairos and it's, it's outside of time. And so Sometimes I laugh when I think about, isn't that funny that I'm picturing the girls as being, you know, mm -hmm. 13 or 14? What's that about? And I think, well, maybe that's just part of the unknown of what Kairos is. But I, I do wonder about how eternal life is right now 
and this way in which they can be present to me and they can be present to their siblings or their grandparents or perfect strangers who are asking for their prayers. Somehow they're able to be present to that and really deeply present, living somehow, you know, in another way that beyond what my senses can perceive. Mm. Yeah, I think there's an invitation to wonder there. Yeah, in our own prayer, even to wonder about what that is like. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on Spoke Street Media Network. My guest is Laura Kelly Finucci. We're talking about grief, hope, and our relationship with our beloved dead. Laura, as you were talking there about your imagination, um, something kind of struck me, which is that you also seem to be speaking about how you don't run from your grief. You didn't say that, but I kind of had the sense of it. Like as you were seeing these, say, five-year-old girls out playing, you see, oh, this is what my girls would look like. And in some ways, it, it sounds to me like you're saying you don't look away. Like part of, I don't know if it's the prayer or the hope is also embracing the grief and confronting it. Is that right? And if so, could you tell us about that? Yes, I think the way you named that is so true and so wise because I think it it is exactly that. It's in being willing to wrestle with my grief that I've come to this place, be it in my relationship with my daughters and more importantly, even my relationship with God. I think the journey, if you will, of grief is not neat and tidy. It does not proceed according to our <laughs> desires or timelines. Right. It is it is hard work. But I have found that when you are willing to enter into it, there is so much that grief can teach you. There are ways it can stretch you. It can deepen your compassion. It can deepen your imagination. But you do have to be willing to be in conversation with it. And it's hard because as humans, we naturally want to run away from pain. And we, we don't want to sit in the uncomfortable spaces. But I remember someone told me once that if you're having a panic attack and you try to resist it, your body actually will have a harder physical reaction to it. But if you feel that anxiety rise, and for people who you know experience panic attacks, they, they would know this, like that if you feel one is coming and you're sort of willing to enter into it, you will come out of it sooner and it will be easier to recover from. And I thought that was a pretty incredible analogy for grief too, because it will rise up and it will feel like a wave that's going to knock you down. But if you're willing to go into it, you're also entering into the deep love you had for the person who is gone. And that love is still going to teach you and change you and let you grow in the ways that our love for you know those who are living among us right now continues to do. So I think yeah, it. I, I am a person that's not afraid to go into that hard place because I trust that God is going to not only bring me out of it, but also transform me through it. And that suffering is not without worth and value and that it can teach us and transform us even if those moments are difficult when the grief rises up, there are there can still be ways that it can change us for good. How do you think you were prepared to do that? Because you didn't know this was coming, this kind of grief and heartache. But at the same time, as you've been witnessing to here, the strange blessings that have come with it, not blessings you would have chosen, but blessings that were given, 
What do you think was important for you, for your husband, in being prepared for facing this kind of grief in just the way that you have been for the past five years? Well, I mean, in some ways, I I think I grew up with grief. My older brother died when I was 10. He had cancer. And so as a young child, I experienced in a really profound way that good people can die and people who have great faith can suffer and die. And you can pray really hard and everybody you know can be praying really hard and your prayers won't be answered in the way that you hoped. So I held all of that from childhood. And I think in some ways, my own grieving for him prepared me in some ways that when the sufferings of my own life would rise up, I kind of accepted them as, I know this is what happens in the world. I've known this from the time I was a child, right? So for example, my husband and I went through several years of infertility before we were able to have children. And and we also experienced a miscarriage. And at that time, I was writing and blogging about motherhood. I loved to write about the connections between parenting and theology and spirituality. And when I was going through those hard experiences, I found that if there were ways I could invite others into that to be vulnerable about that. Now, not to put everything out there on the internet, but to share some, some piece of my heart with someone else, that that vulnerability not only helped me in finding community and finding solace, but also invited other people to go into their own struggles and see, oh, your own vulnerability taught me something about myself. It was a mutual gain in some ways that came from being willing to to sit in that hard place together. So I think I already had a habit of reflecting on the struggles that I had gone through and knowing that if there were a piece of that I could share with others in a way that was you know, healthy and felt mm-hmm. like it was safe and, you know, that's something that God was calling me to do, that that would not only help me, but it could help others as well. I think that's part of the gift of community is that we don't suffer alone. That's part of the lie of, of suffering or grief is that we are completely alone and no one else understands. No one sees us. No one knows what we're going through. But when another person, a friend, a stranger, anyone is willing to say that they've gone through something really hard too, we do recognize, okay, that's right. I'm not alone in this. This is part of the human condition. This is why we need community. So all of that, I think, prepared me in really yeah, strange and unexpected ways to be able to share that experience. Mm-hmm. And what's incredible, I will tell you, is the stories that people have shared with me. They will say, I never told this to anybody because I thought people would think I was crazy, but I know just what you mean because I was at my mother's grave the day that we buried her and I got this flash of joy, just, just like you said, and I don't know how to put it into words either, but I knew she was okay. I knew God was real. I knew I just felt this joy and I thought everyone would think I was nuts because here I was on my mother's <laughs> burial, but I have been privileged to hear so many stories like that, that many times people didn't have a space to share. So it's been truly life-giving for me too. It sounds to me like a little, like these little cultures of grace that in the willingness to kind of provide a little bit of a window, a little bit of a witness into on the one hand, the grief, but also on the other hand, like we were saying, some of the blessing, it creates a kind of well, permission, a, not just a pattern, but a, a kind of example or an opening for somebody else to kind of look more deeply into their own experience and maybe be able to name what they weren't able to name or to share what they weren't able to share. 
I don't know that there seems to me, I'm just thinking kind of off the cuff here. Like it seems to me like so much of the imitation that we do has to do with like the imitation of toxic speech or of like bad habits and of complaining. And this is like the initiation of a different kind of model, but it requires, this is what I'm hearing from you. It has required from you, from your husband, a kind of vulnerability and a kind of suffering in order to provide that. Like it's hard to speak that it's hard to open it and share it, but it didn't stop with you. It actually opened up something for others, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, I feel like I'm saying the word mystery a lot, but grief. (laughs) We've come to the limits of language. We have to, yeah. You you do come to the limits of language. And I think, but that is part of grace, I think, is, you know, experiences that we want to put in just one box. We want to say, this is just suffering. This was just hard. There's yeah. no way that can be redeemed. That yeah. is just horrible. And right. and I don't think that God is willing to ever be limited by that. Those boxes, just God just burst them apart, right? So countless times I have found that, you know, I had a writing teacher who would say, if you drop deep enough into the well of your own story, you tap into the aquifer, the underground water. Uh-huh. Of the human experience. Wow. I loved that yeah. line, right? And I've thought about that a lot because I think that is part of ministry too in yeah. the church to say we go through struggles as humans. We will go through these hard things, but in bearing witness to them, in being willing to give some testimony, we find that actually, you know, someone's story of their deep suffering connects with me, even if the particular contours of their story aren't ones that I've gone through, just to know that they too Hmm. have, you know, smacked up against the wall of their own limitations and cried out to God. And God has answered in many different ways. Yeah, there's profound connection there. And in a time when you're right, there's a lot that's in our culture right now that is not that sort of healthy connection. It might even be this kind of performative vulnerability too. just, oh, let me just air all my dirty laundry on, you know, social media. (laughs) And it's not that, but in, in these places that can be moments of sacred encounter, how do we let even the hardest parts of our lives be places that, you know, God can meet us to meet other people as well? You know, remembering when we're probably coming close to the end here, but I'm remembering when I first reached out to you to see if we could talk, uh, not just for this for this episode, but also just to talk a little bit about some of these things. You responded by saying that you've, you've been sort of beating the drum in the church and all around that we need to talk more about eternal life. We need to talk about the life with our beloved dead or our connection with them, but you just aren't finding it, it sounds like. So Tell us, you know, you're involved in this kind of work and relationship with people all of the time. Like, what would you like to see more of? What do we need in the church, in our Christian communities? I would love it if we did talk about heaven and eternal life and death in context beyond when the family comes because someone has died and they want to have a funeral. I think that's such a hard and tender time that to then say, you know what? This is a great moment to have a theological (laughs) discourse about, do you know what heaven actually is? These people are reeling and they're mourning. And that needs to be a time that the Christian community is showing. I mean, that's a time for a work of mercy, right? To help them bury the dead, to comfort the sorrowing. That's a time when that ministry has to happen. But I would love it if in adult education or in homilies and sermons, 
we could engage what what is this offer of eternal life that's given? Because I do think we treat it as a static thing. You know, if you're baptized, you will get eternal life like it's in a box. <laughs> and yet I think there's there's a real hunger and a need to help people widen their imagination and their belief about what heaven will be. You know, you and I were laughing before that when we just talk about it as, oh, grandpa will be on the golf course. You know, he's just going to be, that's what he's going to do in heaven or you know, I just know grandma is up there playing bingo and she's the happiest she's ever been. It's a, it's a beautiful (laughs) impulse to want to say that whatever our loved one just adored here on earth, that's what they get to do forever. We'll get more of that. Yeah. We'll get more of that. But, but that isn't what it is. And the church has such a rich tradition and teaching on what heaven might be like, what scripture promises us. And so I think I would love it if we could start to explore more of that outside of the context of, you know, planning the funeral and Mm -hmm. and helping the grieving. Because I think we need those times and spaces where we aren't personally, you know, suffering and weeping and mourning that we could start to say, what is that about? What is God inviting me to understand about eternal life? And how do I need to change the way I'm living now if that is what I long for? So I think there's just a real invitation for us to do more and in different times and places. Yeah, what you're saying there at the end really speaks to me about like the dangerous edge of that, right? Like if we really give attention to what eternal life is, which I think at another time you had said, maybe we need to stop talking about eternal life and talk about eternal living, right? Like make it into more of a verb action sense. But that also might come back to us as a an urgency or a, a demand, maybe starts as an invitation, but grows from there to change our own desires, right? Like if our imaginations about what we're thirsting for, longing for, isn't just about more of the thing that we kind of enjoy a little bit now, but is about changing our desires or stretching our desires or growing our desires, that might actually come with some really urgent stuff for me and for you and for the rest of us right now, don't you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you think about the Gospels, Jesus is very clear, like the ones who get to go with him are the ones who you know, fed him when he was hungry, cared for him when he was sick. Like, it's very clear that that incredible gift of eternal life, of eternal living is offered to us, which is just mind-blowing that that's what God offers. But yes, it's absolutely, like, it's an incredible offer and gift of love. And it comes with a way of living here on earth that must be done. It means that we do, we are called to follow and to care for others and to live our lives in a way that, what comes next can be an extension, you know, can be connected to what was Mm. done here. So I do think that's the rub, right? Is that it's not just about what comes next. It's also how we live here and now, which is absolutely a challenge for every one of us. So that heaven changes earth and we don't try to change heaven by what we like on earth. How about that? Uh. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what, I think it. that's what you were saying, right? <laughs> like that's that's what it sounds like. Like we're stretched in that direction. So, well, Laura, thank you so much for the generosity of your time, for your incredible wisdom and witness. It's been a real blessing. Thank you. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This was a delight. And I hope that you'll follow up with Laura. You can visit her website at laurakellyfanucci.com. Find out about her books and other writings and some of the other amazing resources and witnesses that she's putting out there. So grateful to all of you for joining us on Church Life today. We'll talk to you next time. 
Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. The Golden Rule. When you schedule a financial checkup with Notre Dame Federal Credit Union, our people will be helpful and honest and kind. They will look for ways to save you money, and when your checkup is complete, they will send $150 to Redeemer Radio. For more info, visit NotreDameFCU.com slash elevate. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.